Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Greg Stebbin. Greg has been a journalist for over 30 years, writing for brands such as Forbes, Esquire, Men's Health, and more. He has conducted over 15,000 interviews with newsmakers and politicians that include President Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. I might add he also gave a great interview a couple years ago with yours truly. Greg is the author of over 20 books, which include such hits as White House Confidential and Internet Privacy for Dummies. Earlier this year, Greg traveled to Poland and Ukraine to report live on the Russian invasion. This gave rise to his new and latest book and the focus of today's episode, which is called Does Putin Have to Die? Subtitle, The Story of How Russia Becomes a Democracy After Losing to Ukraine. Greg co-authored this book with Ilya Panoramov, who is formerly a member of the Russian parliament and is a staunch opponent of Vladimir Putin. I'm not going to take any more time because this is an episode you do not want to miss. Please do enjoy my interview with Greg Stedman. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think we're very fortunate to have you here because this, I mean, just the title of your book, you you read that and it's like, that's everybody's million dollar question is how do we get through this thing? Is it, is it possible or do we have to just completely get rid of Putin and hit the reset button? Well, and, and, you know, I'm not sure just getting rid of Putin solves the problem either because how many Putins are there in line to take his place when, once Putin is gone? It's not enough. So first of all, the title of the book is a question. It's not Putin has to die. It's does Putin have to die? So it's not just you and I here in the United States, people in, in Western Europe, people in Ukraine who are asking that question. I Believe me, there are people sitting in meetings, in rooms around him, we're asking the same question. Does this guy have to die? And so you have to realize that that if he were to die today by some means, whatever that means may be, uh, the bad news is we could get someone just like him or even worse. So the real solution for Russia is not just to have Mr. Putin removed and replaced by someone else, but for Mr. Putin to be removed by whatever means, including him walking out and replaced by someone and a new government that not only replaces Mr. Putin, but transforms the government from what it is today, a dictatorship, some might say it's autocratic, to a democracy. So the subtitle of my book, the title is Does Putin Have to Die? The subtitle is The Story of How Russia Becomes a Democracy after losing to Ukraine. Our goal should not be just to have Mr. Putin no longer serving in that role. Our goal, all of us, including the Russian people, I'm sure, should be let's let's enable the Russian people to live the kind of life with the kind of freedoms that you and I enjoy. Let's, let's empower them to do the same thing for themselves. But uh, there's so many layers of complexity to this, obviously. You know, it's strange when you talk about some of these countries that are in a state of upheaval, it's almost like, do they want the Western way of life? Like, do we 
does the U.S. intelligence community think there's enough Russians over there saying we want to be just like America and we want a democracy? Or is that is it possible that that's just not in the cards? That's not their way of life? Well, like you said, there's a lot of layers to it. And so sometimes I think you have to ask the right question. Uh, so, for instance, my co-author, and I hope we'll spend a lot of time talking about him, but I do want to sure. give you a little background on him now because it I think it really sets the stage for a lot of the conversation we're going to have. Uh, so I wrote this book with a gentleman by the name of Ilya Ponomarev. And his, may, his name may not be familiar to you today, but I want to tell you about a few things that he did in the past and what his goal is in the future. Okay. He was a member of the Russian parliament. Before he was a member of the Russian parliament, he was a very successful business guy. And he's been a very successful business guy since serving in the parliament. And I don't mean just in Russia or just in Ukraine, but also in the West as well. He has lived in the West. So he understands our way of life. He understands our form of economics. He understands democracy. He has lived in a democracy, but he was born in communist Russia. While he was serving as a member of the Russian parliament, he was the only member of the Russian parliament to vote against the annexation of Crimea in 2014. He predicted at that time on television news broadcasts in the US, in Europe, in Ukraine, probably in Russia, he predicted if we allow Russia to annex Crimea today in 2014, it will only lead to a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia in the future. And obviously that's what we're seeing. So he has spent over the last 10 years, well, let me back up a minute. After he cast that vote, the only vote against the annexation of Crimea, after he predicted that it would lead to a full-scale invasion, uh, it er earned him some prizes from Vladimir Putin. He was exiled. He has not been home to his country, Russia, since 2014. He was forced out of the country, and he's now on the kill list. He now lives in Ukraine. He has bodyguards. He has a machine gun by his door. His life has been altered forever by doing the right thing, but he has also spent over the last 10 years planning and putting together a way to transform his country. He's a Russian, his country, from what it is today into a democracy because he knows that that's what the Russian people want. Although sometimes the Russian people themselves may be confused about it simply because of the culture and the climate that they live in. And, and it's important for us in the West to understand all that. And that was going to be one of my follow-up questions is you have to assume there's dire consequences to a move like that, which you just outlined. So it, 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 did he happen to mention to you that there were other folks that he got buddy-buddy with in the Russian parliament that felt the same way, that maybe didn't have the gall to go out and do what he did? Or was he a lone wolf that just people couldn't believe that he went and said that back in 2014? Brian, you have no idea how brilliant a question that is. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I, I'm not being facetious when I say that. Um, on the day that we are recording this, just a few hours ago, there was released... Uh, a press release, an announcement for the first Congress of People's Deputies of Russia. There will be on November 4 to 7 in Warsaw, Poland, 
a meeting of elected officials from Russia who stood against the annexation of Crimea and continue to oppose the current invasion. You have to understand that to a Ukrainian, when you ask them war, when this war began or the invasion, they don't consider the war of, with Russia to have begun on February 24th, 2022. It started in March, 2014. That war has been ongoing for eight years. And just today, my co-author Ilya Ponomarev and some others have announced this Congress of People's Deputies of Russia. These are all people who were elected legally inside the nation of Russia are coming together in, in Poland to begin forming a new government so that when Putin is gone, they are ready to step in and take control of the country as an interim government with the goal of leading the country to write a new constitution, write new laws, set up a new judicial system and have free and fair elections so that they can choose the form of government they want and the leaders they want to lead them with that new form of government. Wow. Wow. And I guess that answered my question at the outset, which is kind of who would fill that that void if anything did happen to Putin. Now well, no, so let me let me let me let me let me explain one thing though, just to clarify what yeah, you just please. Said. Yeah. You know, if there there's 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 um there's two probable ways this is going to go if Putin was to be gone tomorrow. One is another Putin. One is someone like my co-author who with his team is prepared to step in and, and take over the government. But what is probably going to determine whether it's another Putin or someone who's worse or a team of people who understand the value of democracy and are willing to fight for it, what is probably going to determine that is what the Russian people themselves do are they ready? Are they willing to do what the people of Iran are doing right now? Will they fight for democracy? Ultimately, it will be up to the people to take to the streets and fight. And it should be up to them. If they're not willing to fight for it, they're going to get what gets handed to them. It's uh, so many questions to kind of follow that up, because do we really know like what is happening on the streets of, of Russia? I feel like you're always getting a mix of propaganda and then a little glimmer of, you know, riots in the streets, people yes. that don't want to join the army and attack Ukraine. And does, do we really know what's happening over there? Or is it all a bit of an assumption? Um, I think we know a lot. And if you know where to look, it's not hard to get a pretty honest assessment. I won't tell you that everything you hear isn't tinted with some form of propaganda. Uh, but again, let me tell you a little bit about my co-author and why I think he would make a fine interim leader for Russia. Uh, when the invasion, well, let me back up again. When he was thrown out of Russia in 2014, he lived in Silicon Valley for a couple of years because he was a, in his business, he was a very successful tech entrepreneur. Okay. He lived in Silicon Valley for a couple of years. And again, that's, you know, he, he understands democracy. He understands capitalism. He's... He's lived here. He's taken part in, in what is probably the greatest economy we've ever had in this country, which is the tech economy, right? Yeah. He decided after a few years of living in the United States that he wanted to go as close to his homeland as he could. And when you read the book, you discover that Russia and Ukraine have an awful lot in common. And in fact, he makes the case that we shouldn't think of Ukraine as kind of a stepchild to Russia, 
Historically, it's the other way around. Russia is kind of a stepchild to Ukraine. Ukraine is really the parent. It's not as large, but it is the one with the history that has dominated and steered the region. So he so? moved to, uh, I, I mean, it's just, when you begin to look at historical figures and things that happened, much of the quote unquote history of Russia is actually the history of Ukraine. Ukraine, Kiev was there long before Moscow was there. When you look at many leaders of Russia over the last century and, and even going back centuries, the people that were the leaders of Russia in many cases came out of what is geographically Ukraine. It is just, these are artificial borders. And when you begin to erase the borders and just look at the history for what it was, so much of Russian history was born in Ukraine. And if you want to know more, I mean, not my area of expertise, but if you want to know more, I can recommend a really good book. It's called Does Putin Have to Die? Because it is a big and very important part of the book. But the point I wanted to make is he now lives in Kiev. He, he is, um, many people in Ukraine, in Kiev, have suggested to him that he become a Ukrainian politician. And you can see the advantage of someone like him being involved in Ukrainian politics because he understands the West, he understands Russia, he served there in the parliament, and now he lives and is very loyal to Ukraine. But he has always felt that he shouldn't be part of the Ukrainian government. He always wanted to make the Russian government something he could be part of again and be proud of. So he lives in Kyiv, Russia invades, and he joined the territorial defense that day. He was standing on a street corner with a machine gun, and he got a call from the former prime minister asking him to come to a meeting. And there in that meeting, because again, he's, he's very well known to everyone in the cab, in the Zelensky cabinet, all the way up to the president. I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of like an unofficial cabinet member. He proposed to whoever was at that meeting, I, I don't remember the details. He said, you know what? We need to address exactly the question you brought up, Brian, which is, how are Russians going to know what's really happening in their country after this invasion? So he started a, an online TV network in three days that began broadcasting from a professional studio from initially in Kyiv and now with reporters all over Russia as well, news in Russian to Russians via YouTube. So Russians do have access to to information that is much more accurate than what they're going to hear from their own media, because their own media we know is created for the sole purpose of distributing propaganda. But it's through channels like Ilya's, and frankly, through channels like Twitter, that we as Westerners can get the most accurate information, because there are people who are reporting back, and they're reporting highly, uh, highly valuable and highly accurate information, you just have to be willing to look for it. I thought that the the Russian government censored a lot of this in, in what the access that just the people had to YouTube, to social media, and so on. Well, have you ever heard of VPN? The, like vaguely familiar. It's, okay, uh, it's there are ways around. There's and, roundabouts. And they have a very large audience in Russia of people that are watching their broadcasts because they're doing using VPN or other hacks to be able to do it. Is it dangerous to watch? Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about a country where if you call the special operation a war, you could go to prison. 
that's just crazy. And now, so Ilya has started or is a part of, I guess, this council. Uh, do you know roughly how many people make that up that are that are now in Ukraine? Or going to be in Poland? You mean the first Congress of People's Deputies of Russia? Correct. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that as of today, 52 Russian politicians will be joining this Congress in Poland in a few weeks. And, I'm and sure this that is like a three day, that was exactly. a, a three day summit. Exactly. And it, I mean, do you have any idea the support for that from the international community to Ukraine to even kind of behind the walls in, in Russia? Um, you know, is it is it just 52 people getting together talking kind of, uh, you know, hypothetical goals that they have? Or it, it, is there legs to this thing where they really could come in and actually form a new government one day? Well, I think there's I think I think there's really two questions in what you just asked. So let's separate them. I mean, the first thing is they are going to come together and begin to form a new government. I mean, that is what they're going to do. So uh, and, and I'm sure there will be many more than 52 people by the time this was literally just announced a few hours ago. So I'm sure there will be many more participants uh, to your larger question of is there support? I think what we're going to find is that the support for this is overwhelming. Because I think if you look at how the world is rallied behind Ukraine, everyone's asking, look, there's two questions everyone's asking. Does Putin have to die? And after he's gone, now what? This is the now what part. This is way more important than whether Putin lives or dies. Does he walk out? Does he fly out? Does he leave in a box? That's not really important. The truth is the future of Russia is what really matters. And it doesn't, it really doesn't just matter for the Russians. It matters obviously for the Ukrainians, but it matters for you and me and everyone else in the world too, because the amount of turmoil that this war has created, we don't want to see this repeated again. And it was it started in 2014 and it's being repeated eight years later. And if it doesn't get handled, it's just going to happen again and again and again. In and thank you for kind of clarifying that. But my question kind of comes back to what we were discussing earlier about, you know, ultimately I, your book title is perfect because I keep coming back to it. Does Putin have to die? You know, if if he goes, do we know, is there a number two? Is there a, a clone of Putin that would step right in? Or is this a situation where if he did die that, you know, it's kind of up for grabs? Like, what do we have any kind of idea of what the support system is actually behind Putin, you know, it's a if really, he was to go tomorrow? Yeah, it's a really great question. And it's actually something we talk about in the book. Um, here's, and really, when I say we talk about it in the book, it's Ilya's book. I helped him. Um, but I remember very clearly working on this part of the book with him because I was asking the same kinds of questions. And let me explain to you what he explained to me. And when you hear it, I think you're going to agree it makes perfect sense. One of the problems with an autocratic leader like Putin is he never wants anyone strong around him. They're a threat. So if you're around him and you're strong, if you have your own will, if you're voicing your own opinion, you fall out of a window. Is that phrase familiar to you recently? Yeah. Lots of people falling out of windows lately that have some relationship to 
to the Russian business community or to Putin himself. He doesn't want strong people around him. And so if you're that kind of leader, do you have a succession plan? No, because you're never leaving. So to some degree, it is up in the air. There's lots of people who in their minds are preparing to take over when he's gone. But there's even another layer to that because you might think the title does Putin have to die means someone in Ukraine is going to take him out or someone from some other country away from Russia is going to take him out. But the truth is, if he dies, it's probably going to be by the hands of someone who's very close to him. And maybe it's going to be that they take him out so that they can replace him. But now I want you to put on your hat that you wore while you were wearing the Sopranos and think about this as like Tony Soprano's world. There's a lot of people that want him dead right there in his inner circle because they're afraid of what he knows and they could reveal about them. If he announces he's leaving tomorrow and he's got plenty of money, he could leave and have a wonderful life somewhere and all the security needed but what happens if he leaves and talks and I've built my entire life, my success in business, all my wealth and all my power based on the horrible deeds that he's done and he knows all the horrible deeds I did to keep that wealth and power. And what happens if he talks? The only way I can protect myself is to kill him. That's interesting because I know a lot of... Um... You know what a lot of speculation was about when America started to really crack down the the economic sanctions uh, on Russia and on Putin. The, a lot of people said, "Oh, wait until you see the oligarchs that have been profiting. You know these ill-begotten gains of billions of dollars. Uh, you know, once the kind of party stops, are they going to turn on Putin?" And I feel like that was one of the the hopes that we would see. I don't know that that's really unfolded, um, but where you, there's so much talk about these Russian oligarchs, where does that fit into this mix? Are, are they working at all with that, the council we referenced a moment ago, the 52 with Ilya, or are they just out of the picture because they're afraid of Putin and blackmail? Well, I, I'm going to speculate a little bit here. Um, before I do, I, I just want to share an amazing line Ilya said to me the first time I asked him how I thought this war would end. This is a line I repeat it all the time because I just, I think it's brilliant and it sounds like it's out of a Russian novel by Dostoevsky. And I said, Ilya, how's the war end? And he said, I believe the last shot fired will be in Moscow. In other words, in Putin's head from someone around him. It's okay if it's a rope. It's okay if it's a window, but you know, there's just, you know, there's too many people. And, and let me back up for a minute. When Putin starts talking about nuclear warheads and using nukes, if you're around him, don't you think about killing him just to prevent him from doing it because you know you're going to die too? There's many reasons that many people have to want this man dead. And we're not, we haven't even started counting the Ukrainians yet. So to get to your answer about the oligarchs, it's a really complicated question. And, and I don't know that I'm the best one to answer it, but I'm going to take a shot at it. Okay. Um, in the book, we talk about something called lustration. 
And what lustration is, is when a country has a revolution, because that's really what this book is about. It's about, it's about the Russian people forming a revolution and taking the government back for themselves. In other countries where there have been revolutions, one of the things that is often used are called lustrations. And what it does is it identifies people who have been too close to the previous leadership. It doesn't punish them. It's not a witch hunt. It just says, you can live your life, but you cannot be part of this government. Now, if you committed crimes against humanity or war crimes or other types of crimes that cannot go unpunished, they will be punished. But if you were in just some way part of the government or part of the administration and you were just doing your job, you're not going to be punished for that, but you're never going to be able to be part of the government again. I would imagine that rules out a lot of people now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and it's a very tricky thing. I mean, it it has to be handled fairly. Um, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, some people are going to get away with some things, and probably some people are going to you know get caught in a, a a net where maybe they shouldn't have been prevented from being part of the government. But overall, this is a system that has worked in other countries where there has been a revolution. And Ilya believes this will be a very important part of the revolution in Russia as well. You, you, because, because here's the trap. Go back to the beginning of the invasion. Uh, do you remember just a few weeks after Russia invaded, there was a woman in Russia who was a TV producer and she walked out in front of the camera behind the anchor's head but in front of the camera with a sign that said, no war, they're lying to you. Do you remember this? No, I don't. It was a no, big it's... deal. If you Google it, her first name is Marina, and I can't possibly pronounce her last name. It starts with an O. But if you Google it, you'll see the picture, and I think you'll go, oh, what yeah, I remember happen? that. This happened yep. in March of 2022, a few weeks right after at the start the of all this. Right, exactly. So... Ilya started an organization that helps Russians get out of Russia after they do things like that. If you oppose Putin and oppose the invasion and your life is at risk, he has an organization that actually helps extract you from the country. He really? helped get her out of Russia to protect her, took her into Ukraine, but a lot of the Ukrainians were like, we don't want her here. Because before she held up that sign, she was making the pro-Putin propaganda. And I'm not pointing fingers at the Ukraine Ukrainians for feeling that way. I'm just saying you can see how loaded the feelings are about all this. But if somebody, so Ilya's position is, I'm going to speak for him now. You may have done some bad things in the past, but if you've come around now and you see that you did bad things, and you're now willing to put your life on the line to do the right thing, we shouldn't write you off. Mm -hmm. If you committed heinous crimes, you have to pay for those crimes. But if all you did was your job as a TV producer, creating propaganda, and then you saw the light and did the right thing, we shouldn't punish you for that. Yeah, and, and I think that 
I mean, I think every civilization in a sense that goes through such an upheaval, you, you go through that process. I mean, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, Nazi Germany and it, I know just having read, you know, books on, on the era and everything, there was just such a heated disagreement of, is that, was every German guilty? You know, was yes. every Nazi guilty? Like, how do we, you know, we won the war. Now, what do we do with kind of this, this, this huge focal point of Europe? after the fact and um that is such a complex matter of trying to sort out uh you know who gets a second chance in life essentially but i think you have to you have to you have there has to be a plan and you have to make the plan as fair as you can and 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 it's not going to be perfect but you can't write off a whole population of people early on after the invasion i was doing a, a radio interview and one of the hosts said, you know, these people are never going to change. They're always going to be like this. And I realized as he was saying that, I just, I, I, as a fellow human being, and frankly, as a fellow Russian, I mean, my grandparents came from Russia, as a, but as a fellow human being, I cannot accept that. I can't accept that we, the rest of us, would just live with the idea that there was no hope of redemption for an entire population of people. And while I don't agree with many of the things that the people of Russia are doing today, you know, just your average citizen, I also can look at the world they live in and understand why they do the things they do. But I think given a chance, and and, and I'll illustrate this in a minute, but I think given a chance, most people in Russia if they could find a way to clear their head of the brainwashing, would realize what they had been doing was wrong, what they had been told was wrong, and that frankly, you and I and everybody listening to us are blessed with something better, and wouldn't they rather have that? And, and let that, me and, yeah, and let I mean, me illustrate that in a, in a very real world way. Um, if you do a little research, I mean, it won't be hard. You can find lots and lots of stories of Russian soldiers in Ukraine who, first of all, were sent there, told, at least in the early days, told that they were liberators. So they thought they they walked in thinking they were heroes, had no idea people were going to shoot at them, and the bullets were coming from every direction. So first they thought they were heroes and liberators. But the other thing they have been told for their whole lives is Ukrainians live like dogs. You Russians, you're the special people. You have the wonderful life. You are blessed to be Russian. Those Ukrainians live like dogs. And then they got to Ukraine, and you know what they found out? As Russians, they live like dogs. And in large parts of Ukraine, people there live like you and I do. Modern homes, modern things, you know, modern cars. Why do you think you hear all the jokes and all the stories about the Russians stealing the washing machines? Because they don't have washing machines in Russia. Otherwise, you wouldn't steal them. So imagine you've been brainwashed your whole life about these dirty, mongrel people. Yeah. And then you get there and discover, I was the dog. And I was lied to about it. Suddenly, there's a a huge population of Russian soldiers who are going to go home with that burned into their minds that I've been duped by my government and 
I hope this isn't too coarse, but my life sucks and I'd rather be a Ukrainian. That's not good news for Vladimir Putin. Isn't that part of the recipe for, for a successful revolution? Yeah, and I mean, that's why their playbook is all about suppression and censorship. Right. Is, uh, if they don't know anything else, how can they, they know what else you know there is? And if I could, I want to kind of jump, uh, Greg, to the million-dollar question here, which I know is on everybody's mind, is not only how does this end, but does Ukraine win or it, does Russia lose is maybe the, the better way to frame that question. You know, and if I could just kind of throw in a follow up to that, does this just evolve into a proxy war where Ukraine is nothing more than a space of land that America is throwing money and weapons into, that Europe's throwing monies and weapons into, that Iran is shipping their drones to? Can you kind of crystal ball tell us a little of, of how maybe you see this playing out? Well, and, and, and what I'm about to say is just my opinion. Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I, and let me give you a little background on me because I think that's important. Sure. When I went to Ukraine, really, I went to Poland and made a couple of incursions into Ukraine. So just to be accurate about it, I was never in danger. I just, I want to be clear about that. Sure. Um, I didn't have a background in geopolitics. This just got to my sense of right and wrong. So I don't in any way want to pretend to be the kind of expert you would normally ask that question of, but I do have the experiences I have now. I saw what I saw. I've spoken to a lot of people. And so I do have an opinion. I just want my opinion to be, you know, the, the disclaimer that it deserves attached That's to my fine. opinion. All right. I think you probably know more than, than the rest of us that well, are watching and, and news. It, and it's still just my opinion, but, but I'll, I'll, t so first of all, Again, not being an expert at geopolitics, I don't think this is a proxy war and I don't think it's ever going to be a proxy war. I think it's very different than a proxy war because we're not propping up a country. That's Ukraine. You know, at the beginning of this, I thought, oh, those poor Ukrainians, how are they going to survive? Well, you know what? If you don't realize those poor Ukrainians are not poor at all and they're, they're going to kick ass and survive no matter what, then you haven't been paying attention. Because this is a group of people that remind me of, of the colonists in 1776 during the American Revolution. That's how hard they're fighting and how resourceful they are. Now, they're fighting an enemy that's so much larger and so much better equipped that, of course, they need support from the rest of the world. But they're also doing the work of fighting for the rest of the world. Because there's no doubt in my mind, and I hope there's no doubt in yours, that if Ukraine had rolled over in three days, where was going to be next? Somewhere was going to be next. Was it going to be yeah. Poland or, you know, I don't know. But, you know, and NATO's a factor and all that. But, you know, Ukraine is fighting for us, in my belief. And so, yes, we should be enabling them in every way we can. So to get more specifically to your question, my belief is... Ukraine wins and Russia wins. How can you explain that? Absolutely. Ukraine wins because Russia leaves. The borders go back to pre-invasion or annexation, excuse me, of 2014. Uh, I'm not quite sure how the finances of rebuilding the country works, but I think we can all agree that that would be a win for Ukraine. We know that, you know, the, the, 
we know that there's money been taken through sanctions and blah, 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 blah. You know, you re Ukraine is already rebuilding. If you go online, you can see where they're rebuilding things. As, in some ways, they remind me of Israel. You know, there's a bombing on the streets of Israel, and an hour later, it's like it never happened. That's what they're trying to do in Ukraine. They're, they're, they're not just letting everything go to hell. They're, they're maintaining and improving things as fast as they can. And it's amazing what they're doing, giving the circumstances. But what you really want me to elaborate on is how does Russia win? Russia wins because, and, and this is my belief, I believe that at some point, the Russian people, and I hope it's soon, the Russian people realize through whatever means possible, because there's so many Russians dispersed now around the world, you know, over 300,000 just men have left in the last month or two since the mass mobilization or the partial mobilization. Uh, Russia had already chased out hundreds of thousands of Russians in a brain drain over the previous 20 years. Those people coming back to Russia, um, I think Russia wins because they do overthrow the current government and they get to build the government they want, that they deserve, the democracy that they earn. And I think that's a win for Russia. Okay, and I so think you're, the only way Russia to... loses, the only way Russia loses is if is if this war goes on forever and they're stuck with Putin for forever. Yeah, and, and that's what I was gonna say is that you're kind of alluding to a new Russia wins, yes. but the Russia that we know right now is actually gonna lose, which kind of segues into the next question of Putin doesn't seem like he is going to give up. Um, I think a lot of people thought this was going to be like a one-week war, that they'd come in, steamroll Ukraine. That obviously has not happened. And then I think people thought, all right, he's just going to give up and say we've kind of uh, move on from this as if it was a joke. We didn't really try that hard and we're back to Russia. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how many people predicted this going on, you know, almost a year and without an end in sight. So... I guess to get to that point of how like kind of a new form of Russia wins, you're more or less saying that Putin and the government he currently has established is going to be a thing of the past. Yeah. Or so we hope. Yes. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. I think it's, and, I think Ukraine. And that comes from Putin. within. Yes. Yes. I, you know, it, it's not going to be us. It's not going to be France. It's not going to be Germany. It's not going to be Ukraine. It's not, you know, and the UK can't but, even keep a prime minister. So how are they going to do it? Yeah, uh, I know, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but I mean, but, <laughs> it's but unbelievable. But it should come from, and and that gets back to your question about a proxy war. It should be the Russians. They need to own their government because that's a huge step of having a democracy, isn't it? Otherwise, you know, you're just abdicating your responsibility for your way of life to somebody else. And that's what they're doing now. And so I feel like Putin has a way of, of buying some loyalty and buying and appeasing his people, you know, with the billions and where does that billions come from is mostly of course with oil. Yes. And now we're, we're about to run into winter and we know that Europe, you know, gets almost all of their oil from Russia. So, I just don't really see how you kind of cut off that money supply unless all of a sudden, you know, the Middle East says, hey, Europe, we're, we're ready to kind of play ball with you guys. It just seems like Russia does hold such a great card there uh, with their oil and their pipeline to Europe where 
you know, maybe not such an issue for America, you know, but Europe, they're so dependent on Russia. I mean, I, that's, I, I feel like, how do you, it all comes back to money at some point. And, and that's why I like this interview in a sense, is we always end up talking about money or wealth, you know, factors into economics, factors into everything. What do, what do we do there? I mean, Europe can't just cut off, you know, the oil supply from Russia or they'll freeze. Well, so <laughs> I'm going to make a joke here, but um, but then I'm going to answer you uh, seriously. Uh, what I'm going to do is buy a lot of stock in Burlington Coat Factory. <laughs> um, but I mean that seriously in a way. You know, since the invasion in February, which don't forget was the end of a winter, right? So this started at the end of winter. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you do a little digging, and this is, again, not my area of expertise. You know, I mentioned earlier that Ilya uh, had a very successful business career in oil and gas. So I wish he was here because he could he could really explain this to you in deep detail. And I've had conversations with him about it. But again, not my area of expertise. But I will tell you what I have observed. I think if you go online and do a little research, you will find that a lot of the countries in Europe that were so dependent on Russia for energy in the past have already made great strides towards breaking that dependency. Because don't forget, they knew starting in February and March that Russia could just turn them off. So it wasn't just out of a sort of sanctions mindset, but it was also out of survival. We can't rely on this source anymore. And energy is one of those things where only a few, only a fool has no backup. So I think you're going to find a lot of Europe now has backup. And I think they'll work it out. I really do. You know, people lived for a long time without central heating and air. And I think people will work it out. I think the ones that are going to have it the worst is Ukraine because their infrastructure is getting blown up but I know they will work it out. And I know the people of Germany will work it out. Worst case scenario, come stay in Las Vegas. we got lots of hotels and we could use the bump to our economy. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope you're right that they, uh, they do have a plan B of sorts. And I guess it comes back to you, you always find a way to do what you got to do. Um, and if there's no dire straits, then, you know, for the well, people of Ukraine right now. I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's not going to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to say that, you know, there's probably some people who are going to die and, and that's terrible. I, I, but, you know, who's to blame for it? It just reinforces why this wasn't just an invasion of Russia on Ukraine. Vladimir Putin knew going in that this was going to disrupt the world order in many ways including countries' relationships with Russia itself because of energy, countries' relationships with other energy-producing countries, economically, food. I mean, this. there's no way he went into this thinking it's just about us in Ukraine. He's way no, smarter than not. that. And sure. he, was, he was willing to take that gamble. And frankly, every country in the world has had eight months to prepare for winter. And I think we're going to find they're a lot better prepared than we might think. That, and I appreciate that. I think that's uh, an optimistic stance, but one that I think that uh, everybody will certainly hope for. 
And follow-up question, I know geopolitics is not your bread and butter, um, but I think this is, and I know there's a lot of million-dollar questions here that people want answers to, but it seems that Russia is just on its own island right now. They've really isolated themselves from the world, and they're sur surviving on an island of oil, in a sense. And I think if you talk with anybody that's kind of in the know, it seems that the big wild card here of how far the U.S. and the Western world is willing to kind of step in these affairs is China. That China is this huge X factor of that's the bear we don't want to poke. And if by poking Russia, are we affecting China? Would you comment at all on, you know, how much does China care about Russia and Ukraine? And are they just kind of over there doing their own thing as somewhat of isolationists and just kind of enjoying what everybody else is having to deal with where, um, you know, we take a step back, maybe they take a step forward in a sense. Uh, let me lay some groundwork for what I'm about to say. Okay. So every Thursday at 11 o'clock, oops, I take that back. We just changed the time. Every day starting Monday at four o'clock Eastern, I will do a five to 10 minute interview with Ilya on a platform called Beams. It's B-E-A-M-Z. So if you go to Beams, B-E-A-M-Z dot live slash stop Putin, you can sign up. It's free. You can join us and, and it's interactive. You can ask questions. I'm going to interview him every day at four o'clock Eastern. You know, what happened today? What do you think is going to happen tomorrow? And then the next day we're going to do the same thing. So you can join Ilya and I, you can, you can check them out. You can listen to them. You can ask them questions. You can size them up the same way I did when I first met him on Wednesdays at 11 o'clock Eastern, 11 AM in the morning, every Wednesday, I'm on the same platform, <clears throat> excuse me, doing a show called tyranny today. Uh, so the URL for that is beams, B E A M Z dot live slash tyranny every Wednesday, and I interview a guy named Thomas Nadrowski. He's had a fascinating history professionally and personally. He was born in communist Poland. He's traveled to almost every country in the world. In his career, he's been a risk, uh, a, someone who assesses risk. So he's traveled all over the world assessing what the political risk is, the military risk, the, geo, the, uh, the environmental risk. He also has close personal family ties to Taiwan. He knows China intimately. This, this guy is like a Harvard professor with a sense of humor. And I talk to him every week, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And why I'm bringing that up is the day the invasion of Ukraine happened. Because remember, everybody said it's not going to happen. It's just a bluff. The day it happened. I called him, he's a friend of mine, and I said, is China going to invade Taiwan tomorrow? Because if you wanted to disrupt the world, imagine that Putin or Russia and China were in cahoots and they were going to do this together. That was my big fear. Exactly. Now, we, ha yep. we haven't seen the invasion of Taiwan yet. We heard in the 20th, the People's Congress, was it last week or just this week? You know, they're moving up their timetable on when they're going to take control of Taiwan, or so they say. But I think to answer your question, 
I think China has an incredible interest in what's happening in Ukraine because I think they, you know, I think, I think Mr. Putin and, 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 you know, I think Russia and China got together, these two guys and, and China's more powerful. So we said, you go first, let's see how it works out. And I think if Putin had rolled uh, Ukraine over in three days, I think there would have been an invasion of Taiwan a few days later. I think China's watching this is probably stunned and terrified by the reaction of the world in support of Ukraine. And I think it's just another reason why we have to keep supporting Ukraine because it's not just about Ukraine. I think Ukraine deserves every bit of support we give them, but I also think it's not just about them. If we waver, it says to China, you're next. Come on in. Exactly. And I think, you know, what a lot of folks or experts will point to is, you know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan. We walked out of Afghanistan and two weeks later, the Taliban was in total control and it was just, you know, mayhem. And I, I agree with you that I think if something like that were to happen in Ukraine, that, you know, America steps in and we step right back out. And if they were to roll over, you know, it's kind of like Afghanistan gave Russia the green light. And then Russia and Ukraine gave China the green light. And it's kind of that domino effect. So yes. it's, uh, man, is there, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to, the way that you framed it today, I think there's a lot to be excited about, you know, about yes. what Ilya's doing and about some of the, you know, possibly a new world order for the better. And then in other ways, I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, it's overwhelming. It's, it can be a little bit frightening at times. And, and I think, that's a good place to kind of round it all out. And, and I appreciate you giving some of the um, the plugs there to what you do on Beams. I think that's where people can get a lot more detailed information every week. Um, but is there anything, Greg, that, that you, maybe you wanted to kind of leave with our listeners, um, you know, based on, on all the research and your time with Ilya? I want to, um, yeah, I actually want to add one more thing. And I think it's really important. Yeah, please do. This week, look, early voting in my state started today. Not every state has early voting, but every state has voting. I think it's of utmost importance for people this year in particular, given the state of the world and geopolitics, to really understand the exact positions of the people they support and who they're about to evoke they're about to vote for. I'm sure there's some people listening to us right now who don't think we should send another dime to Ukraine. I I respect your right to have an opinion. I'm not going to, I mean, I might argue with you, but you have your right to your opinion. I would never want to take that away from you. In fact, I'm fighting to give Russians the same right, right? But here's the point I want to make. We've heard just this week, there is some movement within the Republican side of Congress that if they take over the House, uh, the support for Ukraine will be impacted. Uh, it will be reduced. I mean, that 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 is what we're hearing right now as early voting begins. If you're a Republican and you support those people, give them your support. If you support Ukraine and you want to make sure that doesn't happen and that we remain a steadfast partner and ally, you've got to make sure you're voting for the right people, too. So my message here, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. You vote for who you think is best. But I am asking people to please, please, please vote. And be sure that when you vote, the people you're voting for 
are going to support the things that are most important to you. I can tell you that in 2022, there's no issue that's more important to me than what happens in Ukraine, because I think it's a global issue. And so that's what I'm, I'm, yes, I'm concerned about the economy. Yes, I'm concerned about lots of other things. But I think if things go wrong in Ukraine, a lot of other things are going to get much, much worse. So I'm going to make sure that I do not vote for anyone who isn't willing to continue to support Ukraine while it fights this fight that I think represents all of us. Got it. And I think that was very well said. And I know a lot of people, they struggle with with voting because either A, they're lazy or B, it's just it's confusing because, as you alluded to, there may be an issue where, uh, you know, a politician supports and speaks on your behalf and uh, you're right in line with them. And then, of course, there's a million issues out there that they have to speak on and you might disagree with others. And uh, certainly difficult to find that one politician that lines up with all of your your values uh, but you're exactly right. I think you have to pick the ones that are the most important and international security and, and diplomacy right now is certainly at the forefront. So. Yeah. And, you know, the irony is, um, you know, we, there's a lot of turmoil in this country, too. I think I think, you know, whether you're on the right or the left, I think we can agree on that. Right. So it is ironic <laughs> to again. me. I, I think it's it's ironic to me that while those kinds of discussions and battles and arguments are happening in the U.S. We're also talking about a country like Russia fighting to become a democracy. I just, when you vote, what you're fighting for is your right to have the country you want to live in. Don't give up your right. And yeah, it's nobody said it's easy. It shouldn't be easy. It should be hard. If we want Russian people to take to the streets and maybe get arrested maybe get shot, maybe getting beaten. Couldn't you take an hour to sit down in front of the internet and figure out who to vote for and then go vote, damn it? Exactly, exactly. And Greg, I really appreciate your time today. And and I'm not just blowing smoke. I think uh, there's a lot of, of talk about, you know, there's there's fake news and there's poor journalism out there that has its own motive and agenda. I really do think that you bring to journalism what we want to see out of a journalist, which is getting good things done in the world. So I really appreciate the time today and so much of your insight on such an important topic. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. Certainly. Well, everyone, thank you again for tuning into the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Greg Stebbin. And again, his new book that is out is Does Putin Have to Die? The subtitle, The Story of How Russia Becomes a Democracy After Losing to Ukraine. Please keep on tuning in. Leave a review wherever you are. And Greg, thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you again. All righty. We'll see you next time, everybody. The Kaderna Podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through PASS, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Nine 
773-244-4420. Financial representative, the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Pass is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Pass or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California insurance license number, OK04194. Content of the Caderna podcast is copyright of Brian M. Caderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Caderna podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries, or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.